Thanksgiving and prayer. Here's what I was just thinking earlier this week. Uh, man, I'm so thankful. And I think, Lord, when I think about all that you give to me, I realize I probably just take too much into my life. I probably just, I'm, I'm probably uh, um, just receiving too much and not being a really good steward about it. I tried to vocalize that in prayer, but I still have some problems in prayer. In fact, I put on Facebook this week, I said, what are some problems that we have as we go to prayer? We've been in this prayer series. This is the last, last um, sermon on prayer. And I asked some questions. I just basically said, what are your problems in coming to prayer? What's in your way? And if I could summarize that, most people said they're too distracted. Uh, they can't focus. They can't disconnect from life. Uh, they can't prioritize things. You can just say amen or mm-hmm real loud if you need to. Uh, they're too discouraged. Uh, they don't have the words. They don't have the courage. They don't have the confidence. Uh, they're too busy. They don't have the time. They fail to manage time. Or they don't want to pray hurriedly. And when it comes down to it, when I read through all the lists that I created first and then I saw on Facebook, I realized that every reason that we have to pull us away from prayer is actually evidence that we need prayer. Isn't that funny? When you look at the reasons why you can't pray, those are the very reasons why you should. Y'all got to preach with me this morning. Come on. I know it's the holidays. I know you're in this dormant, sedative state, but come on, let's go, let's go this morning. And so uh, let's pray, and then we'll talk more about this prayer thing. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is. To come into the presence of the Most High. God, when I think about coming to you, Father, everything that I need in life comes from your throne. There's nothing that I'm in need or a lack of, God, that I can't come to you and ask. I don't want my relationship, and I don't want our relationships, God, to be just a needy thing. Lord, we've come this morning, God, just to be in your presence. In fact, Father, the, the presence, Lord, is is enough, is enough for us. Because we need rest, we need restoration, we need wholeness and a place of solitude, God, where we can collect ourselves once again, God, and get ready for this world that longs to consume us. I pray today that you will help us, Lord, to understand everything that your word has for us and to walk in the strength that it provides. And so, Father, if there, if there is any... Um, problems with our thinking, any worries, any uh, problems beyond these four walls or priorities that's coming at us after we leave church. I pray, Lord, you would just suspend those things and allow us to focus right now in what matters most. We love you. We ask that you would anoint our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was saying, I, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I found a, a, an interesting statistic uh, around Thanksgiving. Did you know that Pepto-Bismol was one of the most bought products during Thanksgiving? Why is that? Why is that, right? <laughs> because the, the, the label itself, y'all got that label? Go ahead and show that label for me. The label itself says, well, this is, this is the knockoff label I got here. But, it, it, but the word overindulgence is a key word right here, right? An upset stomach due to the overindulgence in food and drink, including. 
heartburn, indigestion, nausea, gas, belching in fullness. And so what I realized is that when we ate from both sides of the turkey and you ate two different types of dressing because, you know, you had to taste the sweet versus the salt, um, you realize you had to reach. Now, I don't know about you. I didn't reach for Pepto-Bismol. I reached for the couch. But for the rest of y'all who, need to, who couldn't sleep it off, you had to find some way to find some relief. And so what I realized looking at this label is I thought, you know what, this is funny because some people would look at this bottle in their hand and say, Ugh, I'm too full to have this. You know what it's like, right? I'm too, I, can't, I can't put one more thing in me. I'm too, I'm too gassy to have this. I'm, I got too much indigestion. I'm too nauseated. I'm too full. I can't. And the funny thing is, is the very reasons why you should take it are the very reasons why you don't take it. Isn't that funny? Because uh, I find ourselves approaching prayer the same way, that we approach it by operating off of our feelings instead of the facts. I cannot tell you that our, our lives and our souls are much like our stomachs, full of things that brought us joy for the moment, but we've realized we've had too much. True? Amen? Uh, I want to tell you something very spiritual this morning. Prayer is Pepto-Bismol for the soul. You need to understand the gravity of that statement right there. That prayer, it, prayer is Pepto-Bismol for the soul. Because after thanks, uh, a good Thanksgiving meal of good times and good food, we find ourselves in need of a good nap, but we can't find that, right? And so we're looking for ways to restore ourselves or, or restore the balance. We, we're feeling tired. And the, the um, not-so-funny thing is, is that in our lives, we do the same thing. We, we fill our lives. It's too much. I think if you're an American, you could probably say you probably have too much in your life. I'm not talking about stuff. Probably just commitments and times and things you got to go do and you're, you're uh, obligatory to. And those things are all in your life creeping in, trying to pull you away. Uh, one theologian puts this weariness of life. Uh, whether you're young or old, we, we see it happening. He says it's called the soul fatigue, the fatigue of the soul. And, and he, he writes uh, in uh, a treaty on the soul needs for rest. John Ortberg, Ortberg writes this. He says, there is a kind of fatigue that attacks the body when we stay up too late and rise too early. When we try to fuel ourselves for the day with coffee and a donut in the morning and Red Bull in the afternoon, altars are open. Anytime y'all want to come on down. When we refuse to take the time to exercise, we eat foods that clog our brains and arteries. When we constantly try to guess which line at the grocery store will move faster, which car and which lane at the stoplight will move faster, and which parking space is closest to the mall, our bodies grow weary. Somebody said amen. There's also a kind of fatigue that attacks the mind. When we are, on bomb- we are, when we are bombarded by information all day at work, when multiple screens are always clamoring for our attention, when we carry around mental lists of errands not yet done, bills not yet paid, emails not yet replied to, when we try to push unpleasant emotions under the surface like holding beach balls under the water at a swimming pool, our minds grow weary. Someone also said amen. There's also a kind of fatigue that attacks the will. We have so many decisions to make. We are trying to decide what clothes will create the best possible impression, which foods will bring us the most pleasure, which task at work will bring us the most success, which entertainment options will make us the most happy, and which people we dare to disappoint, 
which events we must attend, even uh, what vacation destination will be most enjoyable. The need to make decisions overwhelms us. The sheer length of the menu at Cheesecake Factory oppresses us. This is true. Sometimes college students choose double majors, not because they want to study two fields, but simply because they cannot make the decision to say no to either one. Our wheels grow weary with so many choices, and he concludes with this. These categories of fatigue are difficult enough in and of themselves, but they combine them to make, uh, to make us feel separated from God, separated from ourselves, and distanced from what we love most about life and creation. And he calls what this is to be soul fatigue. That, that the combining of these things, the attack on one's will and the attack on one's mind, um, that these things come together and begin to collaborate in creating soul fatigue. I don't know if you've ever had it, but I've definitely had some soul fatigue. It's that fatigue you can't take a nap long enough from. You go to bed tired, you wake up tired. Even after you've had a great day, you're still tired. You're grumpy. You have no compassion, no love, no empathy, no sympathy, no reserve, no capacity for for helping, loving, pushing past someone else's indifferences or problems that they instrument into your life on a routine basis. You're you're zeroed out. You're done. I just want to go home. I just want to close the door. I just want to turn the TV on. I just want to zone out. I just want to get away. I'm just tired. And you hear that word a lot. I'm just tired. Maybe it's just your pastor. But the world does come for me. The world comes for you. It wants to fatigue you. But I want you to know this morning is that, is that not only is prayer peptal bismol for the soul, but the Lord did not intend for us to live this way. We have made these conditions this way. We, we live this life. We put it together. We say yes to the events on the calendar. Amen, right? We're, we're the ones that's at the helm. No one forces that event on our calendar. We put it down and struggle for significance and acceptance and approval. But what I want you to understand is that our approach to prayer, because prayer is the antidote to these things, but our approach to prayer is important because if you don't understand how to properly approach prayer, it'll just become rote and rhetoric, and you'll never have that desire to really return to it. And so this morning, I want to just help you lift the, the burden of life that we have so willfully put on our shoulders and remind us that there is a better way, a different way. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Those are two huge things right there. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. Notice that Jesus gives us the prescription for the soul fatigue. He said it right there. Rest for your souls. By telling us to do two things. It's to learn from him and to take his yoke and put that on us. So often you and I are guilty for not taking on his yoke. But using ours instead. I want you to pay attention to the word easy here. Because easy is really a soul word. 
It's not a circumstance word. It's not an assignment word. If we aim to have easy circumstances in life, you know our life will be hard all around. But notice this. If we aim at having an easy soul, then our capacity for taking on hard assignments will increase. Because Jesus himself didn't have an easy life. He had a very hard life. But the reason is for us, the soul was, is not um, made for an easy life. We, we struggle with uh, doing and having and, and being, and, and we don't know how to balance all those things because we, we, we're trying to work towards an easy life. Can I tell you, that's a myth. There's no such thing as an easy life. The only way you can have an easy life is if you're over-medicated, and that's not a good life. I do want you to know this, is that your soul was not made for an easy life, but it was made for an easy yoke. It was made for an easy yoke. And so as, as I walk through um, what I feel like is in need in terms of our souls today, which is absolutely rest, I want you to constantly be asking yourself, where, where am I too much into something? What, what yoke am I holding on thinking that this is the way life's supposed to be? And where have we, this is the question I've been asking myself constantly, Scott, where have you abandoned Christ's yoke? And why did you abandon it? Where is it in your life that you abandoned Christ's yoke, his easy yoke? Because somehow you thought that your yoke was better. Somehow you thought that your yoke brought more benefit or more approval or more significance or more impact or more whatever you want to put in there. And somehow I thought that was the right choice, but it's not true. Christ by far had the most extreme life, the most difficult life in terms of the pressures he went through. He faced enormous stresses and difficulties and pain. There was none like him, but he had the highest capacity there was to be able to take on those assignments. Now, why was Jesus able to take on stresses and difficulties and pains um, that our lives are not able to maintain? You'll say, oh, he's just Jesus. That's why, Pastor Scott. He's G if Jesus can't do it, we ain't got no hope. But let me tell you is that the fact that he's just Jesus doesn't, doesn't really mean anything at all. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus did not have the ability to resist the heavy yoke of this world just because he was fully God and fully man. He walked in such a low way that we could look at his life and understand the right and proper way. If Jesus could do it, you should be able to do it. That should bring strength to us. You might say, well, he just prayed more than I did. That's, that's the difference. Well, true. But praying, much, but praying much without praying meaningfully doesn't matter that much at all. You, know, you can't just pray a whole lot. You, you need to know how to pray. Quality of prayer is important. And so Jesus, I want you to understand, is that Jesus understood an aspect of prayer that I don't think you or I don't really pay attention to much anymore. Either we're, we're busy uh, or we've never been taught that uh, or we know it's there, but we just don't have time for it. Uh, and so I, what I want you to know is that Jesus, he meditated Oh, meditated. That, that word has a bit of a connotation to it, right? Because all of a sudden you, you see someone going, um, um, yum, yum, yum. you know what I mean? No, not, this, is not, this is not Indiana Jones. You know, we're, 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 we're talking about real meditation. And this world has its own idea of meditation. Don't get me wrong. 
meditation is very popular. In fact, I was doing just some fast research, and a lot of celebrities practice meditation. Uh, yoga, as you know, is a very popular form of meditation. Uh, there's also the, the most global, renowned meditation that there is, and that is transcendental meditation. But there's probably about 16 different real trendy meditations right now. And can I tell you that that is not the meditation I am talking about. That is not the meditation I'm talking about. In fact, all those meditations are based on the Hindu religion. And those are not good meditations. I remember a few years back I was studying Hinduism. And what I can tell you is, is that these teachers, these gurus would tell you, don't do yoga or don't do meditation of any form in any way if you don't know exactly what you're doing because you can face insanity or possession. Um, although possession is a quality that they, that they seek for. They call it the stranger within. I don't want nobody within. You know what I mean? That's, I'm good with myself. Um, but the, the real thing about it is, is, that, is that even... The fact that he would recommend to somebody, don't do this naively, because you could suffer from it. Sometimes we just think that breathing is okay, but let me tell you that there is a form of it um, that is not good. Essentially, what the world calls meditation is the emptying of oneself, or the emptying of your mind. Don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, that is right the opposite of biblical meditation. We, we should expect that because we know that's what the enemy always does, right? He always takes what's good for us and flips it and makes it horrible for us. And so biblical meditation uh, is important. Here's what I want you to know. Your soul wasn't meant for less. It was just meant for longing. That's what you need to know. Your soul was not meant for less. We oftentimes try to look in our life and declutter not only the things that we do, but the things we think about. We're constantly trying to empty ourselves out because we feel like nothingness is better. And it's not the truth. You just don't have the right stuff in you. Actually, more is better when it comes to the Word of God. Actually, more is better when it comes to His presence and His Spirit. Actually, more is better when it comes to the whole idea and concept of God. And seeing how you are made in His image, you might pay attention to the very fact that you might need more of Him in you. Matter of fact, having Him in us is what makes us being able to overcome that which is in the world. And so let me just show you how important it is. Psalms 119.20 says this, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Uh, 119.40 says, Behold, I long for your, your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Biblical meditation is, is consuming Scripture. It is trying to memorize uh, to mutter, to repeat often as you can, to, to practice it, not only in memory, uh, but acting it out. Meditation comes in many different forms. Paul understood how important it was for you to meditate upon the Word of God. He says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That puts a big filter on our life, a big filter on our life. If you live in our day and age, which you do, that's a big filter. A lot of things get scrubbed off the list that we do when we run it through Philippians 4.8 as a filter. 
The most popular scripture you most likely know concerning meditation is found in Psalms 19, 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But perhaps the second most popular verse is found in Psalms 1. And that's Psalms 1, 2. And he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I want you to understand is that when we talk about this particular one, it's been so important to me. I've been really trying to go on a journey myself personally, um, feeling just the pressures of, of just pastoral pressures. They are just what they are. Um, and so I've, you know, there's a real easy demand. Uh, in fact, I just I saw it in Scripture a couple weeks ago, and uh, Jesus' brothers told Jesus, they said, uh, you need to go to um, uh, Judea right now and preach because you can't keep yourself private and expect to be public. People can't follow you in the private. They need to follow you in the public. And he says, I understand that. He says, but it's not my time. I thought, man, that's good. Because people will always push you to get you to do what they want you to do. Even if that's family, they'll do that, right? Are you coming to Thanksgiving this year? (laughs) Yes, we're coming this year, right, you know? And so people will always push you and put you in a place, but you have to understand what's your time, what's not your time. You must understand that there is a a rhythm of life and a pace of life, and we can go through some hard times and some hard rhythms, but I'm going to ask you is where are you setting aside time to really step into some meditation on God's Word and His presence? I I can tell you, you know, Mondays are, are my official day off, and so I really push back everything just to find some time to rest. Um, and this is not always easy because the honeydews are looking at me on Monday morning for sure. But I've been, I, I have found an oasis, if I could tell you that. I have found an oasis that I could step back and I just walk out on my, my back porch and I just breathe and not even worry about everything else around me and just focus on the beauty of creation and who God is. And I know that sounds somewhat cliche in this American culture, but man, is it restorative. Just to know that I don't got to do anything but come to him. And before I even begin to pray, I stop and I just meditate on who God is and his word. And when we look at the book of Psalms, this is exactly what's happening. What you need to know is that Jesus, when he was praying, he was constantly looking at the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the book of prayer when it comes to the word of God. But the book of Psalms, the way we have it, actually even when Jesus had it, is arranged, it's edited. It's been sorted and arranged in a certain way. And the way that it starts off is really kind of peculiar. It starts off with not a prayer. It's it's not a prayer, but as you get into three and all the way up to one, whatever the last psalm is, 2,000, you'll see that that the first one is a meditation. It's a pre-prayer, and when I realized that, I stepped back and I thought, hmm, hmm. The word is telling me, Scott, when you go to pray, you can't just come in like you want to. You just can't come in with all your dirt and all the problems and all the residue the world's put on you. There's a certain way you need to come in because you and I, we get knocked around by the world. We got so many pressures on us, so many issues. And if you watch the media and the news, you got more stuff on you. And so we come into prayer. We come with all of this baggage and all of this hurriedness, 
right? This rush, right? We come in, and as we pray, what do we do? We come in, and we, we know we don't have a lot of time, and we can't spend time with God like we want to, so we come in hurry. We deal with the things that are really good and real fast. Lord, you're good. You're th- I'm so thankful. You're great. Uh, I, I bless your name. Jesus is he's wonderful. I love him. And now, God, if you'll just do these things, right? Petition is most of our prayer. I talked about a few weeks ago how, how important it was for us to balance our prayer life, how adoration is really about two-thirds a part of our prayer life. We see that in Scripture oftentimes. But even before we get into that, the problem is, is we come into prayer we rush in. We rush in. And so what we're actually seeing is, is that when we come in, we come too fast. We come too much of an agenda. And we need to realize that when you come into the throne room of God, when you came into the throne room of a king in the ancient times, you did not just rush in. You came in in reverence. Because there could be something that the king would want to say to you first you, you would not be a smart person to come in and speak before the king. And that's just a human king. How much more should we be more reverent towards God when we rush into his presence and just wait? And just wait. Because the truth of the matter is that you and I, we don't just need stuff. We need him. And there is rest in him and a peace in him that we must slow down and just allow his presence to kind of permeate our problems. Because the problems are not going to really go away. And even if God does not fix our problems, what we need is the peace that surpasses understanding that even though we don't know how to, uh, um, to uh, go about life and to deal with its problems, I just need peace that will carry me through it. And so when I look at Psalm chapter 1, I realize that it's slowing me down to meditate, to meditate on his word. And so meditation is moving the soul from rush to rest. Don't rush in so fast. Can I just challenge you this week? When you go to God in prayer, it's real simple. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, Scott, if you ever want to go to the gym or wake up early or whatever it is, do something small in the beginning, right? Like if you want to do, if you want to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, get up at 5 o'clock and drink your coffee and then go back to sleep if you have to. But get up at 5 o'clock, drink your coffee and do that. And then, and then after you're, you're doing that and you're not going to sleep, then do something else. Do something fun. Do something interactive, something engaging. Don't get to the stuff that takes willpower. Not yet. But just make steps along the way that you can build a habit. And it makes it easier to get into the more disciplined aspects of your life. Thank you. That's all. Y'all can can leave today. I I hope that'll help you. No, No, instead, what we see is this, is that if you will learn to practice a stillness before you go to God in prayer, what you will learn is, is that there's no condemnation in that stillness. There's no lack of understanding how to pray in that stillness. There's no me, 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 me in that stillness. Actually, being still before God is the most successful thing you could do and quite possibly might be the most rewarding thing you could do if we can come in and move from the rush to the rest. And so this week, let me challenge you. And so when you come in, slow down. It was once said if we pray without meditation, our communication with God becomes poor and distant. Without meditation, our communication with God becomes poor and distant. 
Read with me Psalm chapter 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is what it needs to be said of us. That your delight, that your pleasure, that your desire is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Can I tell you? That you and I need to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yield fruit in its season. Not all year round, but fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. So what does it mean to meditate? What does that mean for us? When I looked at this word up, it was pretty interesting. Uh, the word literally means to mutter or to muse in the Hebrew. It also refers to the poets, how they would turn over thoughts constantly in, in their mind and to, to extract a meaning or an abstract phrase. And so in this way, they would continue to say the th same thing over and over again or ponder the same thing over and over again to fully extract what the mind is trying to grasp. It's what, po it's what poets use when they said, we muse on something. It's to think deeply. I found this kind of uh, peculiar because the same word they use to muse, poets use to muse Poets also say they ruminate on things. And, and so as I, I heard that word, I thought, ruminate, that sounds familiar to me. And so I, I got to digging again. And do y'all know that uh, ruminating is derived from the term rumen, which is the first stomach on a cow. It's, it's about to get deep right here, right? Animals that chew the cud are called ruminants. So let me draw this line for you, okay? When we, when we meditate, when we begin to ponder and we turn over thoughts in our head, it is as if one person is ruminating, which is much like a cow who has a rumen as his first stomach. And as he, as he ruminates that, that material or that or that cud he spits it back up and he chews on it essentially what's happening is is he is meditating on that grass he's chewing the cud you ever seen this before <laughs> i want you to know this week chew the cud <laughs> chew the cud when I broke this down, there were so many crazy similarities between what happens when a cow chews the cud to when a believer meditates on the Word of God. It blew my mind. I said, Lord, you did not put these things. These are not coincidental. There's no way, no how. And so I could go on a crazy list, but let me just expedite our time here. Each time the cow chews the cud, it becomes easier to digest. Are you, are you walking with me this morning? Each time the cow chews, more nutrients are released. And facts show, studies show, that the happiest cows are cows that chew all day. 
I don't know about you. I said, my, 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 Lord. According to Dairy Cow Nutritionist Mary Beth de Andazara, when a cow is chewing her cud, that's a good sign. Amen. It's a good sign when the church chews the cud. Amen. It means that she is comfortable, relaxed, and eating a good diet with a sufficient amount of long fiber. Cud chewing is often used as an indicator of a healthy and comfortable herd. Oh, church, I want us to be cud chewers. I, I can't tell you. I don't mean to say that in a playful way. I truly mean. And it's, it, the crazy thing is, so many of y'all farmers, y'all get this. Y'all understand what it's like for cows to chew the cud. But did you also know that, that cows are a flight type of being? In other words, they don't fight. They, they, they flee. They're, they're, they're scared like a deer and, and other things. They don't fight. They don't have anything to, re, to return. And so they eat because they're always on the move. They're always busy. They're always afraid of time. There could be a predator right there. And so what they do is they, they, they grab it and they go. And when they find a good, cool place to sit down, then they chew the cud. And I thought, Lord, that's exactly why I am. I'm so busy moving from point to point to point to point that I don't have time to sit down and graze like I do when my stomach's sitting at the table for Thanksgiving. But normally, spiritually, God, I'm always moving from place to place to place. Teach me to chew the cud. Teach me. To inhale what I can have right now and let me chew on it later on when I have time to really let it to, to release into my soul and rest into my soul. And I'm praying the same thing for you. Before I go, I want to give you three promises of meditation. Three, prom- three promises, guarantees. Psalm chapter 1 tells us this. If we meditate, these three, three, these three things will exist for us. One is that meditation provides stability. It promises stability. Meditation promises substance. Meditation promises blessedness. Stability as the, as the, uh, let me just have, let me just have, uh, Destin, why don't you come on back. It provides stability. When we look at the blessed man, it says that he is like a tree planted by the waters. There's stability when we meditate. There's stability when we come to God and we just meditate upon his word. That, 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 that ability to, like the tree who borrows strength from the earth, because if you just put a tree outside of its dirt, outside of its context, it's not that strong. But if you put a tree in the dirt where his roots can grow deep, he has strength. Can I tell you, listen, you need to know this if you don't know already, that the soul only knows how to borrow strength. I need you to understand that. The soul only knows how to borrow strength. And when the world comes for its tax on your life, if, you don't, if you're not plugged into a source of strength, if you're not plugged into a source of life, like the tree that's plugged into the waters that flow continually, which is the source of life, which is also... Uh, metaphorical for God's word. It's representative of God's word. If you and I are not plugged into something that is greater than us, that has more life than us, then we don't have any strength to give because you can only borrow strength for your soul. You can only borrow it. Trees by streams do well when it comes to droughts, 
when it comes to storms and winds and those types of conditions in life. And you and I know that this life is full of those conditions that would come and try our roots. But a tree planted, notice it's planted. It didn't just grow up, it didn't just show up there. In fact, all throughout Scripture, when the Lord is speaking about trees being planted, he speaks of it in a willful, intentional way. That this tree is here because I purposed it to be there. We don't get to be next to God's word and refreshed by God's word unless we choose to willfully put ourselves and plant ourselves in the word of God. It must be choice. It will not be happenstance or coincidence. So you can't just borrow strength coincidentally. You can't just make it through hard times coincidentally. If you're going to weather hard storms, if you're going to weather problems and possibly even persecution one day, you better be next to the streams when it comes. The contrast is Psalms 1-4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is that thin husk around the grain. It's easily moved by a puff of air. Anything can move it. And then the second thing is substance. The tree produces fruit. It does not. The chaff does not produce anything. But the tree, it, pr- it produces fruit. But in season... So many of us feel like our lives have to be in constant production, right? Constantly giving. Can I just help you this morning and say, don't focus on what you're producing. Focus on knowing the season. Know the season. If if you find a tree that's producing fruit all year long, we might be suspect of that. That's not natural. It's been modified to some degree. Because God's in charge of the seasons. You know why God's in charge of the season? Because if you were in charge of the season, you would bankrupt the very reserve that you have. And so God brings seasons into our life and says, no, now's the time to rest. Now's the time to plant. Now's the time to produce. Now's the time to go down. Now's the time to grow up. And if you and I don't understand God's seasons in our life, we'll be so busy trying to produce fruit. Why? Because fruit tells the rest of the world there's life in us. He's not called you to produce fruit all year long, but he did ask you to show leaves all year long. The leaves are the blessedness. Regardless of what's happening in our life, that when people look at us, it's like, it's like the oasis, right, in the desert. When you see a palm branch and you see leaves on that palm branch, what's the first thing you think of? Trees. No, you don't. You think of water, right? You think there's a place where I'm thirsty, I can go. And can I tell you that this world, people are wandering in this world. And they're wandering through the desert of life. And they look at your tree next to the river and they see leaves. You know what they say to themselves? Well, there's the Christian that wants to judge me. No. They say there is a place where life is. And can I tell you that the contrast that speaks the most is when God brings those situations into your life that you find hard, that you find difficult, that you find uh, um, uh, not prosperous at the time. Those are the hard seasons, the drought seasons of our life. But in those moments, every unbeliever, every thirsty person, every weary person can look at your tree, see your leaves, and know there's life somewhere below the soil. And so what I'm telling you this morning is that the greatest witness you could ever have without ever opening your lips is to rest 
in meditation and prayer is to dig your roots down into that cool soil and to allow that water to transform life from one thing into fruit in the other. So this morning, I want to ask you, is, is your soul fatigued? Are you, are you weary? You've been going too much? I'm preaching this message because, as you guys know, this is my journey. Y'all just been on it. I'm tired. But, but me being tired is, is my fault. I can own that today. Because I realize that there's a remedy there. There's scripture there. There's a meditation I can have. So this morning, I want to open the altars like this. I want to ask, are you tired? More importantly, are you ready to exchange some yokes? You've been holding your yoke on your own. And the Lord says, come, take my yoke upon you. Allow your soul to rest and learn from me. And if that's you, after I pray, would you find a place at the altar? Just take some time. It's 11, 12. We got time. And just allow God just to begin to restore some things in your life because you're empty and you need an easy yoke, not an easy life. Father in heaven, we come before you today. God, if we're honest, we, we get tired. We don't want to admit that. We want to act like our shoulders are wide. We can carry a heavy load. We don't tell nobody, God, about the tears at night. We don't tell people of the heaviness that we carry deep within ourselves. We, we just smile and tell everyone yes to everything. But inwardly, God, there's an anxiety, maybe an oppression, perhaps even depression. But Lord, I know that regardless of what the causes are or, or, or what the problem is that's on our life, Lord, I know the remedy. And that remedy is found in you. So, God, I pray today as I come before you personally, God, would you take my yoke from me? Would you give me the yoke that you desire? God, I'm not asking, we are not asking for an easy life. We know that's not even possible. But, God, what we need so desperately is an easy yoke. And I pray you would show us how to make that exchange because it's difficult. We want to be independent and we want to do things and accomplish things ourselves. But Lord, if we can rest in your word and we can rest in your presence, then you'll bring us the rest that our soul needs this morning. I ask that you would do it, Father, in Jesus' name, God, and many lives, Lord, that are in need of you this morning. In your name we pray. Would you come?